0: Copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Today, as we continue our series through this book, uh, roughly chapter by chapter, we're today looking at chapter 6. Chapter 6, today, verses 1 through 27. And you'll see as we look at it that we'll be looking primarily at the Nazarite vow and also ending with Aaron's blessing, the benediction upon God's people. As we read through uh, the Old Testament, if you're familiar with Uh, The narratives of uh, God's people, you'll be familiar with uh, the Nazarites of Scripture. We think of people like Samson, Uh, most likely people like Samuel, maybe even John the Baptist in the New Testament. Those who were set apart by a special vow uh, to belong to the Lord. And today in Numbers chapter 6, we will see the Lord uh, give regulations for what that vow was meant for uh, and how it was to be carried out and what to do with it. So, Numbers chapter six today, beginning in verse one, we will we'll read the entire chapter. Before we read Numbers six together, let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer again. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we come to it, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would allow us the grace to read and mark and learn and inwardly digest that we may find salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, that we may become your followers and your holy ones. We pray that we would trust in him and find your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes, or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins." All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him and defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, And make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day, and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation, and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void, because his separation was defiled. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish for a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May add a blessing as we study it together today. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Penny saved, one and two at a time, by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with a silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times, Della counted it, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. Uh, so begins the, the short story that O. Henry wrote uh, that he named the gift of the Magi. You've probably heard it before. If you've not heard the gift of the Magi, you've heard the idea of it repackaged somewhere. It's told over and over again in a thousand different ways. But the originals tells us uh, of a young couple, a couple named Jim and Della. And between them and their $20 a week salary, they have only two prized possessions in all of the world. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's and the other was Della's hair. Well, faced with the thought of a Christmas, without a gift to give her husband suitable to be owned by him, Della sells her gorgeous locks to a wigmaker's shop. When Jim returns home that afternoon after work, he is shocked, at first, uh, by his wife's short hair. Then he is shocked again to find uh, Della's proclamation that the thing was done to give him a gift a stately platinum chain for his heirloom watch. Oh, then it's Della's turn to be surprised. Jim produces her Christmas gift and lays it on the table and reveals that he has sold his pocket watch, sold it to buy the tortoiseshell jeweled hair combs that she longed for and never dreamed that she could actually afford. In the end, the couple sit down to a, a happy dinner together. They both gave gifts that the other couldn't use. So they both gave something that made their own gift worth giving. And, and if the gift of the Magi, if this little short story teaches us anything, it teaches us that love is demonstrated by sacrifice. It teaches us that both in our stories as in real life, the best gift that you can give is the gift of yourself. Well, in Numbers chapter 6, we meet a different kind of couple we meet the Lord and his bride the covenant God and his chosen church and between this couple we encounter a people on the one hand who are willing to endure sacrifice to go through self giving and and self denial in order to give themselves to the God whom they love but here we also encounter the God who is determined to give all of his goodness to his people and so we might steal one of O. Henry's closing lines as a summary of our passage today. That of all who give and receive gifts, such as they, are the wisest. What we find today in our passage is, is the wisdom, really, of giving ourselves to the Lord. And on the, on the other hand, the blessing of the God who gives himself to his people. The wisdom of giving ourselves to the Lord and the blessing of the God who gives himself to his people. Now, if you wonder what it looks like to give yourself to the Lord, the Nazarites are a very helpful uh, visual aid, an example for us from the Old Testament. In a a different time and under different regulations that do not carry over specifically to the New Testament, let that be known, uh, that there are ceremonial things that we will do away with, but there is a wonderful example here of what it looks like to give ourselves To the Lord, verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Now the important word that you need to see there is this language of separation. In fact, in the ESV, the footnote lets us know that this is exactly what Nazarite means. A Nazarite is one who is separated. The vow of a Nazarite is a vow of separation. And so we'll see this language of separation repeated throughout this chapter. Specifically, we see it in the three regulations that are given that govern this vow. Separated from wine and strong drink, that's one. And then verse 5, during the days of his separation, no razor shall touch his head. Verse 6, all the days that he separates himself, he shall not go near a dead body. And then that great summary in verse 8, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. There's the rub. When we're dealing with Nazarites... We're dealing with separation, and when we're dealing with separation, we're dealing with holiness. For those of you who have been with us over the last six weeks or so, this is familiar ground. Uh, You may be tired of retracing these steps by now, because in every chapter and in every sermon, somewhere hidden underneath the surface, is this theme we keep coming back to of holiness. We saw it last week. The Lord made a division, a separation. He said there are unclean people that must be put out of the camp and may not come in. We saw it in the Levites that the Lord called, and He stationed them around the tabernacle to make a separation between where God dwelled in their midst and the rest of the tribes outside. Separation here in Numbers and throughout the Scriptures: separation is the dividing line between what is consecrated and what is common between what is holy and what is profane. The Lord is saying that for anyone who would give themselves to the Lord, let it be seen in the way that they make themselves separate. Let it be seen in their holiness. Now, perhaps because we've seen it so often, you notice there's something refreshing in the way that it shows up here in this chapter. What's refreshing is the way that it is a wide-open opportunity for consecration and separation. Read it again. It says, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite. This is unexpected. So far, we've had uh, had genealogies, and we've had uh, duty commands, and we've had tribes, and we've dealt with the heads of households, and the fathers, and the men, and suddenly here are these women. When we think of all the Nazarites that we see in the Old Testament, and those that bleed over into the New, we think of men, godly men. Wonderful men who stood up for the Lord, and yet here we find the Lord opening up either a man or a woman. It's open to all. This is a voluntary promise. Unlike the Levites who were conscripted to serve the Lord, a a Nazarite was one who simply wanted to serve the Lord in some way, to dedicate some portion of their life, or perhaps their whole life if they so choose. There was there was a personal sort of heartfelt response to the goodness of the Lord. It was voluntary. And it was, uh, it was open to any who would come. And we know the ways that we tend to divide ourselves. We divide into different classes and into different groups. We do this in the church. Or the clergy, that's me up here on the, on the podium. And then there's all of you, uh, the laity down there. And we have this, this separation. We have the elders and then the deacons. And we have the members and we have the visitors. And you can extend that into every area and every realm of human society. Right? We have the educated and the simple. We have the rich and we have the poor. We have the blue collar and the white collar. We have the men and the women. We have the black and the white and every tone and skin color in between. And we imagine that all of those different distinctions and groups are different ways of separating people. One more uncrossable distance, often between ourselves and one another. And maybe we wonder an uncrossable distance between ourselves and the Lord when it comes to holiness, when it comes to separation from the world and fellowship with our God, there is no class that is left out. There is no division in that regard. But all can come near. And so when the Lord gives his rules for the Nazarites, this is a reminder. Not only can all of God's people draw near to him, but ought all God's people draw near to him. The Nazarites... Uh, we're told, uh, are those who take a special vow, but it's a special vow that's in line with the things that the Lord has already told his people. They all were a kingdom of priests. They all were a holy nation. They all were God's treasured possession. And, And as the Nazarites took their vows and were visibly different in their society, they became like a mirror to the rest of Israel of what all God's people were called to be. They were called to be separate And you'd see that in the Nazarites, specifically in the way that they lived differently than the way the rest of the world operated. We've mentioned the three restrictions. There's no wine for the Nazarite, no haircuts for the Nazarite, and there's no contact with the dead bodies. But in each of those restrictions, notice the way that they're all taken uh, to their most extreme example. Not only was, was wine and strong drink forbidden, Uh, But they were not allowed to come in contact with anything from the vineyard. No grapes, no raisins, no seeds, no skins, nothing. And that was, folks, out of the ordinary. Uh, Drunkenness, of course, uh, is a sin, but not drinking. The Bible doesn't put any restrictions on moderate use. Uh, and consumption of alcohol. It's not that this was a sinful thing God was calling his people away from, and especially in Israel. The vineyard represented all the goodness and the blessing of the Lord to his people. It was, in a sense, a a promise that looked forward to the settled land. Do you remember what the spies bring back after they, they spy out Israel and they see what is this land that the Lord is bringing? They bring this enormous cluster of grapes carried on a pole between two men. The vineyard was a picture of God's blessing for his people. And practically everybody in that culture drank wine. Practically everyone ate grapes and raisins if they could get them. The fruit of the vineyard was was a sweetness of the Lord. There, There was no domino sugar, you know. There was no high-fructose corn syrup pumped into everything. There was no need to check all the labels to see how much added sugars were in your foods. It wasn't there. But there were grapes and there was sweetness. It was a blessing of the Lord. But the Lord is saying, if you want to live differently, if you want to be dedicated, you, you have to be separate. You have to give this up for me. Well, that was different. The same goes with these haircuts. Not only were the Nazarites not to shave their head, but verse 5 says, they shall let the locks of their hair grow long. That was out of the ordinary, especially for the men. Uh, In this context, they would have had short hair, and to grow your hair long immediately pointed you out as one of these people who had taken this Nazarite vow. It was the opposite for the women. It was normal to have long hair, but at the end, when they also shaved their heads, You would see them and you would know. There's someone who took a vow to the Lord. There's someone who is separated. It was out of the ordinary. It was was different. And then there's this issue of contact with the dead. This is the, uh, the Nazarite restriction that has the closest parallels with the other ceremonial requirements in the Old Testament. Death was the ultimate reminder of the consequences of our sin. And so death was taken very, very seriously under the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Numbers, this very book. Numbers chapter 19 tells us that anyone who touched a dead body was considered unclean for seven days. That explains that period of cleansing later. They shall be clean on the seventh day and then come back on the eighth. Numbers 19 says if you touch the dead body, you're unclean for seven days. To stay outside of the camp, you have to wash with waters of purification before they could rejoin the congregation. And because of that inconvenience, that cleansing ritual, normally contact with the dead was something that you avoided. There are obvious uh, family needs that arise. You've got to care for the the body of a loved one who has passed, and so you you do that, and and, and you go through that inconvenience because of those that you love. But verse 7 takes this restriction to the extreme. Not even for his father or his mother. Not even for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean. Because his separation to God is on his head. That was out of the ordinary. It was shockingly separate. It must have been about as unexpected as that time that Jesus told one of his would-be disciples that, you know what, you just follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. It was not the way that things happened In Israel, but Jesus was calling for a radical dedication, a complete break with with everything that the world and the culture thought was normal living. And God is calling his Nazarites to do their same in their own time, perhaps in a different way, but that's what he was calling for. The Lord is, is showing here in this chapter that true devotion to God means a willingness to be different. Dear Christian, have you reconciled with the fact that to be a believer in our world is to be different? Or are you still clinging on to hope that someday our culture will come back around and you'll be at the top again? Have you reconciled with the fact that to follow Jesus means being willing to say, you know what, you can think whatever you want of me. I'm not going to go where you go, I'm not going to believe what you believe, I'm not going to do what you do. God calls his people to be different. And even within the the wider nation of Israel, God was saying through these Nazarites, this is what it looks like to be mine. It means giving yourself completely to the Lord. It means letting him direct your relationships. It means letting him determine your pleasures. It means letting him determine the way that you live in the world. It means not just giving your gifts, and not just giving your offerings, and not just giving your obedience, but it means giving yourself to him. That's why we have such a problem when we read about that most famous Nazarite in the Bible. You remember Samson, right? You remember the, uh, the superhuman strength and this man with his long locks. You remember uh, this champion of Israel who did great things for the nation. And the disjoint that you find in that narrative of the fact that his heart was not devoted to the Lord. So, Samson is something of an anti hero in the scriptures. Num- uh, Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13 tells us how he was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. But as we read the story of Samson's life, we're unsettled. We watch him vacillate between anger and rage and sulking and stupidity, and we watch him sinfully long for a pagan wife, something the Lord had told his people not to do, and then in the course of pursuing that longing, we watch him break every single one of his Nazarite vows one by one. That's true that the Lord still used Samson, didn't he? He used him in mighty ways, perhaps in spite of him. It's true that God fulfilled the word that he sent to his parents, The Lord said he would begin to save Israel through him from the hand of the Philistines. And we see that, but the history of Samson is a cautionary tale. It's a warning. A warning against thinking that we can have all the outward signs of following the Lord, but not to have a heart that's really separated to him. That's the central feature of the Nazarite, by the way. The Nazarite is not only someone who is separated from, but separated to. Did you hear it in the text? Verse 8, all the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. That's what real holiness is about. It's not about mechanically following a few rules and regulations that we cook up for ourselves. There are any number of groups in the world, uh, so-called quasi-Christian groups and non-Christian groups, that can give you a list of things that you have to do, and if you can jump through the hoops, well then you'll be fine. That's not holiness. Real holiness isn't about building fences around our behavior. It's not about listing a few places that we won't go, or a few choices that we won't make, or a few words that we won't say. All of those things might be involved eventually, but real holiness is about drawing near to God. All the days of their separation, they are holy to the Lord. That's why the law of the Nazarite culminates in fellowship in God's presence. Verse 13, this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting and he shall bring his gift to the Lord. You can do your homework later, folks. You can sift through all of these offerings and all of those details and you can find uh, the specifics of all the offerings and all the libations. Uh, Ian Dugood says that that those who would be a Nazarite must fulfill all the, the covenant obligations in miniature. So, they give all of the sacrifices all at once. They fulfill all of the laws symbolically, in a sense. But the passage climaxes when the Nazarite is brought near to where other Israelites normally did not get to go. Do you remember that cordon of safety around the tabernacle of God? Do you remember the mandate that God gave? The Levites that if anyone comes near to the tabernacle and he does not have prior authorization, you must put him to death. But now the Levite, I'm sorry, the Nazarite is brought right to the entrance of the house of the Lord. He or she comes with their gift. they come with their devotion, they bring their offerings, they bring their long hair. an outward symbol that that their life had been given completely to God they come near with their drinks and their offerings and verse 20 tells us after that the Nazarite may drink wine we wonder there were three restrictions there's only one thing that we come back to Why? why the wine why is this so significant well it's significant because that is the way that worship normally ended in the time of the tabernacle. All right? They would come. They, they, would, they would bring uh, all of their gifts and, and uh, their, their offerings. And, uh, and they would bring them and they would make their sacrifices and the priest would take their share. But once the priest received their portion, typically the one who brought the gift would sit down, probably with their family. They'd sit down with what was left over and they would have a feast together in the presence of the Lord under the smile of God. The completion of this ceremony was worship, and it was fellowship. It was a precursor, a a looking forward to the table of the Lord that we uh, use every week to end our services ourselves. It's one more blessing, really, uh, that we, we find. One more picture of the blessing that we receive when we give ourselves to the Lord. You remember what James tells us. He makes us a promise. He says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. That's the blessing. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Give yourself to the Lord, and the Lord will receive you into fellowship. Some of you hear that, and you think that sounds a bit too much like the gospel of Benjamin Franklin. Right? Give yourself to God. He gives himself to you. God helps those who help themselves. Great. Here's the law, folks. Go out and do it. If that's what it sounds like, it means you haven't read to the rest of the verse. James continues. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James is not giving us a New Testament version of the law of the Nazarites. He's not listing a few quick points of external obligation uh, like Samson and then sprinkling in a bit of blessing at the end. James is calling us to total inward transformation. And if you can believe it, all the external stuff is the easy part. You can do that, can't you? You can get your act together, can't you? At least for a little bit. Anybody can go for a while without a haircut. Let's be honest. Even drunkards and alcoholics can manage sometimes to give up wine and whiskey for a day, or for a year, or for a decade. Anybody can do it. Anybody can learn how to hold their tongue in the right company. Anybody can figure out how to speak Christianese if you go to enough Bible studies. Everybody can learn how to raise their kids according to some little prepackaged formula guaranteed to produce polite, docile, polished little Pharisees who know how to keep all the rules. You can do that. There are outward observances that almost everybody can eke out if they can find the resolve and the self-discipline, but the holiness that God is after runs far deeper than those external things. James chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's what it looks like to give yourself to the Lord to pursue holiness. It looks like humility. It looks like submission. It looks like surrender. It looks like a willingness to be searched by Him. To be known by Him. Giving yourself to the Lord means a willingness to to have Him put His finger of conviction on all the sore spots of bitterness and, and unforgiveness that you would rather He not touch. Giving yourself to the Lord means allowing Him to claim ownership over your habits, and over your relationships, and over your doubts, and over your unbelief, that quite frankly, you would rather not give up. Many of you know the famous quote from John Calvin. It's the sentence that became known as his motto in life. I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. That's a pretty good approximation. of What it means to give ourselves To the Lord, it's a call to be directed by Him. To let Him have more than just our behavior and our speech and more than our prayer and our Bible reading. Giving ourselves to God means giving Him everything. Without hesitation, nothing in reserve, promptly and sincerely. But I promise you that when you try to give yourself to God like that, if you've ever tried to give yourself to God like that, you will find that it is a task that is beyond you. Something that you cannot do. A gift that you cannot give. Like Della staring at her $1.87 with nothing to offer. And not even hair. That's why we need this second smaller portion of our text. In Verse 22, there's a transition here. You see it. We move from the call to give yourself to the Lord uh, to the gift of God's blessing for his people. Of all the 36 chapters of the book of Numbers, I bet this is the, best well-known, the most well-known passage. These three verses right here in this benediction, I bet many of you already have them memorized because you have heard them over and over and over again at the close of Christian worship services. The pastor raises his hands and he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then all of God's people go out from the presence of God and into the world. God's church goes out as his chosen, separated, treasured possession. We go out from this benediction, verse 27 tells us, with his name placed upon us. We go out from his blessing as his saints. But everything in this little section, everything about it, reminds us that this kind of separation and this kind of blessing can only come from the Lord and never from us. Notice the chain of God's authority. Verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them. You can almost hear these words tumbling out of heaven. From God to Moses, from Moses to Aaron, from Aaron to the priest, from the priest to the people. This is not a self-starter spiritual program. This is not the upward reach of all of our best efforts. This is not the result of our human investigation, studying how to discern how we can get God to do for us what we want, if only we can work the angles in just the right way. This is every good and perfect gift that comes down from above, down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting of shadow or variation due to change. These words rain down on God's people like the showers that he sends in their appointed seasons. And just as he's sovereign over one, so he's sovereign over the other. And so we see the chain that leads us back to God's authority in this blessing. You also notice God's triple promise. Verse 24, it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. And we love that line. But you notice that it's surrounded by two other mentions of the same gift. We find it, God says, you priest, you shall bless the people. And then when it's all over, in case we've missed it, God says, you shall put my name on them, and I will bless them. Did you catch it? You shall bless them, the Lord bless you, I will bless them. It's a triple promise. And what the Lord speaks will come to pass. When he declares his word, it shall not return void. And the Lord has declared his blessing upon his chosen people. Now, blessing is one of those words that we have practically done to death. Uh, overuse and, uh, and using it in ways that it becomes sort of a filler. We pray and we don't know what else to pray and that's not a bad thing. So sometimes we just say, God bless that person. Or we hear somebody sneeze and we say, God bless you. And we're not sure if we mean anything by it because it's just become sort of the background of what we say. Blessing in in the biblical world was a lot more concrete than it is now, perhaps. Blessing in the biblical mind meant abundance. It meant that when God's people come to him, they come through his covenant promises. When God blesses his people, he makes them full. He makes them strong in the Lord and the power of his might. One scholar said this blessing is the face-to-face relationship with the Lord that brings his protection and his favor. I think that's pretty good. And if that's accurate, it also means that the rest of these lines are laid out in what we have come to love as Hebrew synonymous parallelism. There's a good preacher word for you today. Synonymous parallelism. It just means that they're saying the same thing in different ways. It means that the God who blesses his people is the God who makes his face to shine upon them. It means that blessing means that God turns his gaze toward you rather than away from you. It means that he smiles on the people that he's chosen for himself. It means that the blessing we receive from the Lord in this benediction is his pleasure in calling us his. That's what it means to receive God's blessing. And he gives it three times, I will bless them. So we see God's authority and we see God's promise, but notice most of all the mention of God's mercy. It shows up under a different word in verse 25. It's in the middle of this this rising crescendo of God's goodness. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now, unlike the word blessing, grace is a word that that in our minds perhaps particularly becomes far more meaningful and far more specific the more we, we learn to apply it to our lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially in the Reformed tradition. Grace is the key word that we use to unlock all that it means to belong to the Lord. All that it means to be united to Him. And so sometimes we talk about the doctrines of grace. And by that we mean just a sort of shorthand for salvation. How does God call you to Himself? The doctrines of grace. Sometimes we, uh, we organize what God has done with His people and all of His goodness uh, according to what we call the covenant of grace. All of His, his dealings and His promises to them, the covenant of grace. Of grace we sing about God's amazing grace that saves wretches like us. We sing about wondrous grace that is greater than all of our sin, and the hair on the backs of our necks stands up when we hear somebody read Ephesians chapter 2, and we know that it applies to us. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift. Of God, Grace above all else is the word that reminds us that God's goodness comes to his children as a gift, not as something we are owed. And It means that this benediction is perfectly placed where we find it here at the end of the first six chapters of Numbers. It seems almost anticlimactic, perhaps. We're used to this benediction being the end of something. Maybe we should wait until the end of chapter 6. We'll come back to this benediction maybe. But no, here it is. The end of chapter 6, stuck in between this, this call to the law of the Nazarite and this very long list of all the gifts and all the offerings that all the tribes bring before the Lord on the day that the tabernacle was consecrated. In between all of that stuff that God's people do for him is this wonderful, poignant reminder that none of our devotion can ever place God in our debt. None of our gifts can twist his arm to give us what we think we need from him. This week I came across one of what I think is the the best definitions of biblical grace I've ever encountered. It's a little clunky, but but Timothy Ashley says this. He, He writes that grace is the benevolent attitude that issues in kindly action of a superior party to an inferior one in which the inferior has no claim on the superior. Let me read that again. Grace is the benevolent attitude that issues in kindly action. Action of a superior party to an inferior one in which the inferior has no claim on the superior. What does it mean? It means that grace always flows downward to the undeserving. That's the only direction that it can travel. Because if we have a claim on God, it's not grace. It's our due. Now, even in the regulations of the Nazarite, even here in these Old Testament laws that deal with God's special, separate, devoted people, there's a hint that this downward movement of grace is exactly what we need to find blessing. I'll grant you that it's not a very subtle hint. It's not very subtle because it takes up just about half of this chapter. Did you notice that the majority of chapter 6 deals with sacrifices? Sacrifices. In verses 9 to 12, the Lord outlines the sacrifices that have to be brought by the Nazarite in case their vow doesn't go the way that they thought it was going to go. Now then in verses 13 to 21, he outlines the sacrifices that still have to be offered even when it does go the way that he thought it was supposed to go. And you know what it teaches us. It teaches us that all our holiness is never enough. It teaches us that when we come with all of our best obedience that we can muster, even if we can produce with our outward deeds some kind of visible holiness that could make a Nazarite blush, even if we could do all that, we'd still come before the Lord with empty hands. Worse than that. We still come as sinners needing to be saved. We still come as debtors needing grace. And so the Nazarites come near to the presence of the Lord come in their law and they come in obedience and they come in outward conformity, but they still bring their lambs, their rams and their pigeons and their grain. And the fact that all of those sacrifices have to be offered over and over again serve as a reminder in the words of Hebrews chapter 10 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. So they bring their vows and they bring their hair and they bring their sacrifices and they give their animals to the priest and all the priests stand daily at their service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God. Those priests, they stand continually, but Christ sits down. He sits down because the work is finished. He sits down because the offering is complete. He sits down because there is no more holiness that could ever be demanded, for by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We began today with a, a story about gifts that were given. I want to end with uh, another one. This is from a book called The Hammer of God by Bo Jetsch, a Swedish uh, Lutheran pastor. It's a work of spiritual fiction. And in this section, he, he imagines a young seminarian, a new pastor who is Uh, been uh, given into this parish where an old pastor has been serving for a very long time and you know how young men are very idealistic ready to change the world ready to show uh, what he's God and what he's made of the young man is named Friedfeld Friedfeld says I just want you to know from the beginning sir that I am a believer he said his voice was a bit harsh The rector put the lamp back on the table, puffed at his pipe, and looked at the young man a moment before he spoke. So you're a believer. I'm glad to hear that. What do you believe in? Friedfeld stared dumbfounded. In Jesus, of course, answered Friedfeld, raising his voice. I mean mean that I have given him my heart. The older man's face became suddenly as solemn as the grave. Do you consider that something to give him? By this time, Friedfeld was almost in tears. But sir, if you do not give your heart to Jesus, you cannot be saved. You are right, my boy. And it is just as true. If you think you are saved because you gave your heart to Jesus, you will not be. You see, my boy, it is one thing to choose Jesus as one's Lord and Savior, to give him one's heart and commit oneself to him. It's A very different thing to believe on him as the redeemer of sinners of whom one is the chief. The heart is a rusty old can on a junk heap. A fine birthday gift indeed, but a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on the wretched tin can. He sticks his walking cane through it. And rescues it from the junk pile and takes it home with him. That is how it is. And the Lord says, when the Nazarites bring all of their offerings and all of their gifts, he says, you priests, you pronounce my blessing. You raise your hand and you put my name upon them. You mark them out as mine. You pick them up and you bring them to me. That's how it is. Calvin said, my heart, O Lord, I give to thee. It wasn't a statement of pride. It wasn't some claim that he tried to, to place on God's promises. It was a confession. A confession that the only gift we bring to the Lord is a heart that needs to be cleansed. It was a confession that the only holiness worth having comes from the God who gives himself to his people. And that's what he does. We're a promise that is true for us only in Jesus, that the Lord will bless you and keep you. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise and your blessing. We pray, oh Lord, that you would make us yours. By your spirit, you would send conviction and faith and give us the gift of being willing sacrifices on your altar to give ourselves to you. Make us, O Lord, willing to be different for your sake, not to put you in our debt, but because we know that you have made us your own. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing we could never deserve. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, and we ask in his name, amen.